Thought of getting money, living lavish in the stool every day I done turned into a habit Man, I had to make it happen When I first started rapping, they said it would never happen Poof, making money like it's magic Every time I hop up on a beat, I turn into a classic These little boys screaming that they want a static When I pull up, tell me why they start to panic Run it up, run it up Welcome back to another episode of Different by the Fall. This is season four. So I told you about the clap. <laughs> How you guys doing out there? My name is Kyra. I'll be your host. And with me, I have Urban and I have K. Hello. Uh, what is today? <laughs> what is today? We have a very special guest. We have Ashir with us. What's up, fellas? Thank you for having me. Of course, of course, of course. Wow. So before we start the show, do you want to tell the viewers out there about yourself? Yeah, my name's Ashil. Um, I work in mental health. I've been working in mental health or in the helping field, as I call it, since 2011. So it's been a little over 10 years. Um, currently, I work at a nonprofit. I oversee a couple programs, and then I also work as a mental health therapist um, as well. Okay. So, all right. Again, before we start off the show, um, thank you guys for subscribing. You know, um, turn on post notifications, all that. It helps us out a lot. Uh, keep buying your fall merch. I'll uh, be do it for you guys. So to get the show ah to get the show started, uh, what made you like want to work into the mental health department? Um, for me personally, my road to mental health and working in this field is it was a journey. I would say it took me a little while to figure it out. Um, I'm Haitian. Um, I went to college, and when you go to college and you're Haitian, Haitian parents expect you to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Um, so I went the doctor route. I wanted to be a pediatrician when I first started college. Quickly realized during freshman year that it was not really what I wanted to do. Um, no drive, no passion. Um, really was down in my mood while I was at school. Um, so I had to figure out what was next. During my sophomore year, changed my major. Um, I played sports in high school, so I figured let me try athletic training. Tried that. That didn't work. But um, what I did do was try to do like job shadowing. And um, that's how I figured out I didn't want to do athletic training. It was through an internship in psychology that I said, let me just try it because I like the psychology course that um, really opened up my eyes to this field being the field that I need to work in. Um, I was able to work at a, um, at a transitional home for uh, women, like between age, I want to say 16 to like early 20s, who were homeless. They never had a male, th- uh, a male intern there or male staff ever there. So I'm walking in. Nobody really trusted me. Um, nobody really was open to communicating with me at first. I mean, I think that by the time the internship ended, um, everybody was okay with me. Everybody was very comfortable. And I actually saw the impact I was able to make on those individuals. Um, and it really validated to me that, okay, this is what I need to do. From there, I found myself a mentor and really figured out what steps to take to get into this field. And my mentor basically told me, you got to study mental health. Okay. Um, with that, you were out uh, when you're interning, and you were diagnosing people. Like, what do you feel like is the best way to, to self-diagnose yourself if you feel like you might have a mental health problem? Trick question. That's a trick question. <laughs> Self-diagnosis, right? Um, the way I approach it is like we don't want individuals to, um, almost like Med Med MD. You know, the website where people can go, they can kind of read symptoms and figure out, okay, what's wrong with me? My back hurt. My head hurt. That's not what we're doing here when it comes to mental health. There are different assessment tools and appraisals that you can do online, questionnaires that can kind of give you a gauge of if you're dealing with anxiety or with depression. But in general, 
you're not looking to use those as a way to diagnose. Always trust a professional, trust a mental health therapist, trust a psychiatrist, trust a psychologist, trust a clinical social worker. Um, but don't approach it on your own because let's say you do have a diagnosis of depression. Is that something that now you're going to tackle on your own and you're going to try to solve and resolve on your own or are you going to go and try to get some support? So self-appraisal and some self-assessment tools, it's definitely great to utilize just to get a little bit more awareness, but it's always best to utilize those when you have a game plan as far as let me just find a therapist. That's always a good place to start. So when it, when it comes to, like, people who, like, all right, um, hmm, I don't want to ask this question. Okay. So when it comes to people who are, like, diagnosed with, like, depression or some other mental illness, mm -hmm. like, do you, like, recommend them? And, like, say they're stubborn or something, like, stubborn or, like, very, like, yeah, I can handle this myself. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend, like, how do you deal with that? Like, do you recommend that they go get help or do you, like, just ease, like, into... You're talking about maybe somebody who's in your life, like personally, or you're no, talking like me as a therapist, you as, a, as if I'm approaching someone. And let's say, so me as a therapist, people usually come into me and there's usually some level of motivation. Only time I'm dealing with people who maybe aren't as motivated is if mom or dad is sending their teenager to come talk to me. Um, so if I'm working with an adult, let's say, who's dealing with depression, right? A lot of people, they'll come to therapy and they're motivated to work things through in therapy because they want to avoid something else maybe sometimes. Maybe it's, I, I, don't, I don't want any pills. I don't want medication. I don't want this or that. I just want to get better. And they're coming and they're talking to me, right? And part of my job is to educate them on the diagnosis and to educate them on what they're experiencing and what they're feeling, help them to process some of their emotions. But if at any point I realize they need a little bit more than what I can provide, I have to recommend them to go to a different level of care. Through the therapeutic process, that's going to be over the time that we're you know, working together, that therapeutic alliance is built. They trust me. If I'm recommending, hey, you should probably go and get a psychiatric evaluation for medication as well, people are usually receptive to that. Now, on the flip side, working with maybe a teenager whose mom said you're going to counseling on Thursday, you know, and, they, and then now they're sitting in my office, they don't really want to fully be there, right? It's a matter of understanding what, what is that barrier, what's that boundary, um, where are they at, and how do they see themselves, right? Meet them where they're at because... Sometimes you can see very clearly um, what someone else is dealing with, and they themselves might be in denial. They may not be at a place where they're ready to address it, right? Something called the stages of change. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, planning, action, maintenance, right? Mm -hmm. An individual who's at a pre-contemplative stage is somebody who's in denial. That's somebody who doesn't recognize that there's an issue or they do know, but they're completely denying it, right? There's a lack of awareness there. You can't expect somebody who's in pre-contemplation to take any steps towards progress, right? So if you got somebody, there's a guy I follow on social media. Um, his, he goes by Possible Pat on social media. But he tells his story about how he, um, how he had to really take his health, physical health, um, into account and really prioritize it. He said that he realized at one point that... Um, he really was out of shape. He had no idea. And I say he was in the pre-contemplative stage because he really had no idea. It wasn't until he lost a bet, had to do push-ups, couldn't do a single push-up, that he realized something's wrong with me, right? And that's what moved him from pre-contemplation to contemplation. Once he was in contemplation, he started, okay, I got to figure something out. Something's wrong with me. I can't really figure it out. He went to the doctor, figured out he was over 400 pounds. The rest is history. 
you have to start planning, put that plan in action. Once that plan is in action for a while, it's maintenance, right? But sometimes we, as people who maybe support people, will walk into their situation based on what we see and what we assess, and we think, okay, well, we got to start planning. You got to, you know, hit the gym. You got to talk to a therapist. You got to do this. You got to do that, right? But if they are not there in their mindset, they're not going to move. Is there, okay, so is there a way to basically show that person, hey, that, like, because you might say we start off in planning. Is there a way to get that person into um, pre-consultation content and then planning? From pre-contemplation to contemplation, probably mm-hmm. where we want to move them to. Um, it's a matter of insight and awareness, right? Um, the best thing that we can do, right, is help individuals by listening, right? Listen to what they have to say. Listen to where they say they are. Because if you're talking to someone, right, and you see what you see and you're speaking to them based on what you've observed in that individual, right, you're not really hearing anything they have to say. You're going to approach them based on your own knowledge or based on your perception, right? But if you actually take a beat and just listen to what they have to say, right, and you're hearing them out and you hear what they have to say, you might realize, okay, they're not where I see them at, right? So let me meet them where they're at so that I can just, you know, help them out but offer the help that they're willing to receive, right? Sometimes that's just holding your hand out, and that person grabs your hand, and y'all just walk in. Other times it's, you know, they might actually tell you, like, I need you to do this, I need you to do that. But you kind of have to be at the, at the liberty um, of that individual sometimes, right? We can't push people because at the same time as you push them, if you, you'll, you'll find that you're speaking too much, you're talking too much. You're doing too much, and you can't want a change for an individual more than they want it for themselves. That's a good point. Um, that's a real good point. I, I got a two-part question. Go ahead. Uh, let's say, based on age age range, what would you say? You see a lot more younger people or a lot more older people? It's a good mix. I feel like with me, over the years, it's kind of, there's been a consistency of seeing a lot of teens and a consistency of seeing a lot of men um, and a lot of couples. With the with the teens and the, the young men and couples, you believe that there is a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, nah, I got to phrase that down. With the, with the young people, do you believe that there is an issue with uh, the state of mental health in um, our, our young, well, young people like me these days? So I'm a part of that young group. You're part of the young group. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think what happens, right, um, a lot of young people, let's, let's, let's go from the teens I work myself up, right? A lot of the teens that I work with, right, people are coming in because maybe their parents have observed something and now they want their teen to be in counseling, right? Um, so, so, so that's different in and of itself, right? Working with teens, usually the parents have to consent to services, have to consent to treatment, Right. And they're coming, usually there's an issue in the home or there might be an issue at school or behavioral issue or mood change, mood issues, right? Um, but, but there's usually, when it comes to teens, there's usually a, 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 a larger motivation on the parental side of things than with the individual themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to younger people, you're talking their 20s or so, if they're coming, they're motivated. That's the thing, right? In general, what I observe based on you know, my observations in my professional opinion, right? I think that what we're seeing with a lot of younger adults is this drive for passion, this drive for following and chasing their dreams and doing for themselves, right? But at the same time, that's a road 
that can be very challenging and can have a lot of pressure in a sense, right? And I think that that's what older people kind of tend to forget. They forget what it was like to be young, but this younger generation is growing in, in an era and a time where technology is booming, where social media is booming, right? Where you got content creators, you got influencers, you got all of this out here. People, young people are making it and they're making a lot of money even, right? And that's everything that they're observing. And when you think about somebody who's in that young adult age, the idea or the question that they're always asked is, hey, what are you doing? What are you gonna do in the future? What do you wanna be? What are you doing with your life right now, right? And that in and of itself, I can tell you, impacts mental health, right? Um, coming out of the pandemic, what people also don't realize is that a lot of people had a lot of change during the pandemic, where there was a lack of socialization, a lack of connection, right? Typical experiences that would have been stuff to look forward to or rites of passage or transitions in each other's life, like prom or graduation. Those were taken away. Missed. Right? Freshman year, completely <laughs> gone. Completely gone. People didn't get a chance to experience those things. And now picture, picture going to college, right? And you walk in and it's your, it's your sophomore year, but your sophomore year is your first time on campus. Sophomore year is your first time seeing, seeing other students that look like you. It's a lot to unpack. It's right a there. lot. I went through that. I was like, dang, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's a lot. And I think that that's what a lot of people are now adjusting to, right? So with that, we'll see that there's um, social anxiety that kind of comes into play. You'll see that anxiety in general is up. Um, confidence, right? Um, the way people perceive themselves, right? I love freshman year in college. And a lot of young people I work with, I always tell them, you got to take advantage of freshman year. Because the main two things people are going to ask you freshman year, and it makes it very easy to socialize and make friends, is what's your name? What's your major? Even if you change your major, even if you don't know what you want to do, everybody, oh, I'm undecided. Oh, that's fine. And like, There's no judgment. Everybody's just there to kind of get to know each other. It makes it so easy to approach people and just have a conversation. People during the pandemic did not have that. They didn't have that opportunity. Right now they're coming in sophomore year, and you're still trying to figure out who you are in general. It's hard, right? So, you know, there's an increase in depression as well. A lot of people were so isolated and so disconnected from folks and from people. Some people were in maybe their homes, right, where for some college and leaving the home and going on campus is like an escape or at least having some sort of a routine as an escape. People were stuck in the house with the same people every day, right? And who knows what home is like? It could be toxic. It could be an unhealthy environment. So now if that's, if that's the routine on a daily basis, you can already see coming out of that, what's that going to be like? And for those two years during the pandemic, let's not act like they didn't monetize laziness. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's for real. Um, one thing you talked about was um, depression and anxiety. So with that, what are like a couple of ways you feel like is a good way to deal with depression or anxiety? Um, so with depression, right, one of the things is routine, right? I encourage people to really figure out a morning and an evening routine, specifically a morning. And it's based on where you're at. You don't want to tackle both all at once. But just coming up with some sort of a routine that pushes you to move, right? Because what depression often does is it cripples individuals where they want to be in bed all day, they want to be in the house all day, they don't want to go anywhere, they're not motivated to do anything. They're only leaving the house if they have to. They're only showering if they got to, right? Um, their mood is down, right? but we can still do, right? And 
that's what I encourage people to at least start with is, hey, let's develop some sort of a routine. What do you, what are your interests, right? What do you like to do? What moves you, right? And for some, it might be, okay, I like, I like walking. Okay, cool, go for a walk. Seriously, wake up, go for a walk. First thing, go for a walk. What music are you listening to, right? Put on that music, put on that album, right? This is like going into technology now, right? Mm -hmm. I got this little speaker in my house, Alexa, right? You could set up routines. Every Friday when I get home, I don't know if my wife set up the routine or if my son did it. But every Friday I get home, nobody's home usually, right? My wife is coming off of work getting my daughter, and then I pick up my son from school. So I get home, and I, and like every now and then it, it, it catches me off guard because I'm not expecting it, but I should at this point. But there's a routine set up on Alexa, and the music is just going. You get in the house, music is blasting. God forbid my wife was home the day before and she had the speakers on in the house and she collected, and she connected to the speakers. You walk in and you hear the music like, yo, what's going on? Right? But that's just a routine that's set. It's every single Friday. It's like, oh, it's the weekend and now we've got music playing in the house. Right? You could set up a routine just on your smart speaker. Right? How do you want to wake up in the morning? What's the sounds you hear? Right? What kind of mood does it put you in? What kind of space does it put you in? For some people, it's I want to listen to a podcast, I want to listen to a radio show. For others, it's I want to listen to some music. Right. But figuring out what that is. Right. As you as you are as an individual and working that into some sort of a routine. Mm -hmm. So that's where I would say to start when it comes to like depressed mood or depressed symptoms. Right. Not all depressed symptoms means that somebody has major depressive disorder. Right. That needs to be tackled in a whole different way. But just feeling in a funk, feeling down, depressed mood, depressed symptoms, rather than letting that funk continue. Right kind of disrupting it with a little bit of let me figure out if I need to put a morning routine in place or a night routine in place. Some of that's working out, exercise, some of that's reading, um, walking, biking, hiking, right? But figuring out what to put in. It doesn't have to be super long. There's people out here in the Navy who wake up at 4 a.m. I'm not telling nobody to do that. <laughs> but figure out something for the routine. As far as anxiety is concerned, I, I try to encourage people to tackle anxiety, right? Don't try to avoid it. That avoidance of anxiety will increase your anxiety believe it or not, right? Understand the anxiety. Try to get a better understanding of when does it occur? How does it occur? When do I feel most anxious, right? And now navigate that particular situation. What's something I could do to feel a little bit better? When I was in high school, anxious. right, I, um, I didn't realize that I was dealing with some anxiety. I went throughout high school, um, played sports, um, and then junior year, we had to take a class for two marking periods or a semester, I guess was what it's equivalent to. And the class was speech, public speaking, a speech class. The teacher who taught the class taught it at like a college level. It was a very difficult class. She wanted us to write a paragraph for our intros on every speech, draft an outline, and write a paragraph for your conclusion. She wanted you to memorize the intro and the conclusion word for word, and then she wanted you to go through your outline, right? This is the format you had to follow for every single speech. My anxiety was through the roof. I'm not a great public speaker. I definitely wasn't when I was in high school. I stuttered a lot, like a lot. And I remember standing at that podium every speech class, my hands were shaking and sweating and I was just stuttering and I didn't know what the deal was, right? What I realized was I had to navigate that. And this is me doing this with no guidance, no therapist. There's no school therapist at my school, nothing like that at all. It was really just, you got to figure it out. And for me, my motivation was I wanted to keep playing basketball because if I couldn't get the grade in the class, I wasn't going to play, right? So I had to figure it out. 
And one of the things that really, really helped me was deep breathing. I didn't even realize that that's what I was doing, but I started doing it on my own. And when I got to school, started studying, and when I in my master's program, I'm realizing, oh, I, that was anxiety back then. Oh, I did kind of figure it out, right? So breathing is, is key just to kind of regulate that central nervous system, right? Get you calm, get you back in balance, right? But then navigating what it is. And for me, with public speaking, I, I realized in addition to just getting up there and taking a couple deep breaths before I start, I had to make sure that the preparation part for all these speeches was on point. I had to make sure that when I had the option to select the topic, I selected the topic that I wanted to talk about because that made it that much easier. I ain't gonna hold you. I used to have a little anxiety when I was little I too. You, I thought you were a little anxiety right Yeah, now. I did when I was little, but it was just for like, like clutch stuff. Like when you was playing video games or something, Mm. Like, I, I I can literally recall back to one day, like, I was at one of my cousin's house, and we was playing, like, we was playing Super Smash or something, and it was just me and my older cousin, and he's way better than all of us, so it was like, all right, I'm here, and it's like, yo, you got two lives above him, like, you can beat him, you can beat him, and it's, it doesn't help that, you know, my other two cousins is sitting here yelling in my ear, like, yo, 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 so my hand starts sweating, I'm shaking the controller, like, what do I do? What do I do? So I forget like my whole method or whatever. But I got over it. I got over it. It Just... could be debilitating. It could really take you out and take you off your game. That's the thing. I think that that's the part that really catches people is even in moments that you are comfortable and expect like like what you're describing. Like you knew you good. You knew you had it. But now it's like it's this pressure. Yeah, it's this pressure. But right? got over it sooner. It was it was more of like exiting people out of like you know. Sidelines, you know, stay on the sidelines. I, I got this myself. Your voc- keep yeah, your focus. Keep awesome. focus. Like, stay locked in. Mm, once, once that happened, it was good for me. I was straight ever since then. Love clutch moments. Um, one thing I want to say, uh, you talked about this earlier. We were, I, I couldn't ask a question then. Was um, you talked about people either um going through therapy and like taking like a more talkative way, and then there's people that might take medication. Do you feel that? Um, it doesn't matter if you take medication because I know some people might be against it or is it better to, or depending on your situation, that's how you should treat it. Yeah, it's definitely something that's dependent on the situation, right? Um, there's different mental health diagnoses. Um, a lot of times people hear a lot about depression and anxiety, depression and anxiety. And oftentimes it's a package deal. You get both. There's actually medication for both. There's medication to treat both. Um, I am not a medication specialist, so I don't try to educate my (laughs) clients on that. I don't educate the people that I serve on medication, but I do redirect them to people in my network. Hey, this is a psychiatric uh, physician assistant. This is a psychiatrist that I know. This is a psychiatric APN. You know, you should just go to them, just get an evaluation, see what they would recommend, right? And they're able to provide education on medication, right? it's okay to concurrently receive therapy and medication. Medication for certain diagnoses is not just going to be this fix-all kind of thing, right? Um, Some people have a resistance to medication because they don't want to be on medication for the rest of their life. So they're like, I'm not taking no meds. Oh, I I just have a resistance to medication. Resistance. (laughs) People have resistance to medication in general, right? Not about me on that. What I could say is that there's certain diagnoses that do require medication, right? you got diagnoses like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, right? Some of the more severe and persistent diagnoses, those require medication on 
a regular basis, right? And individuals usually will be more receptive to that when they have that education, when they've learned more about their diagnosis, when they've become more self-aware, right? In order to remain compliant with that. And once they are, there's some stabilization, right? Um, but as far as therapy versus medication, it's, it's, it's something that should be done concurrently based on the diagnosis. Every situation is very different. There's been times where maybe somebody needs to be on medication before they start therapy because for them, they're so depressed that they can't move. They're so depressed that nothing is, you know, nothing is moving for them. Nothing is changing for them. The idea of getting up, leaving the house, and actually sitting on someone's couch to talk is unachievable, right? So that medication might be the thing to get them over the hump. And then what you realize is as they were in therapy for a year, now that psychiatrist or whoever's prescribing their medication starts to titrate them down, decrease the dose, and all of a sudden they're not on medication at all anymore. Mm-hmm. That's um, one thing I, I feel like we wanted to ask you, because we don't really, DVD does not get a lot of uh, men who have kids on the episode. I feel like we have a lot of uh, men on, but not a lot of men that have kids. So how is it like to be a father of two kids? Be a father of two kids, huh? Two. Hmm. I'm right, right? Two? Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started with one kid. My son is five. My daughter is two. Um, I actually just went to the park with them today. It's kind of crazy because it was just me, my kids, and a couple friends, and they're three kids. Um, so I think that that's a good representation of what it's like. You got you to gotta have eyes everywhere. You got to be chasing them. Um, you got to look after them. Um, having one of my coworkers that described having one child is cool because you could do a zone. Um, on his own, you could do like a double team on your kid. You got your wife, you got yourself, you, you're you watching the kids, you know, take care of the kids. Once you have two kids, now it's man-to-man defense. Um, and it's uh, it's it's a trip. And my, my, my daughter is two. She does a lot. Um, she's all over the place. Um, I think as a man, especially as a black man, um, there's, there is some pressure to make sure that you are providing, make sure that you are present. Um, especially me having a son. I try to really be present for my son and teach him the lessons that I can. Um, so there's some pressure, I think, um, but at the same time, I don't think there's anything that would make me ever change my present. Um, a lot of people seem to be resistant to the idea of becoming a parent or becoming a father, um, but it's truly life-changing, being able to look at your son, look at your daughter, see that that's yours and that you have this place of impact in their life, and they hold you to a high regard. You walk into the house, and it's daddy, 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 and they're running right at you, right? Um, it's There's nothing else. There's no better feeling than that. Um, but it, but then keeping it real, because I'm going to keep it 100. On the flip side, there's that idea of I got I to gotta provide for these kids. I got to protect these kids. I got to give these kids the best life that I can, right? So you go to work, and you do that, and... Um, the experiences aren't just money. I think sometimes people feel like you got to make a whole bunch of money in order to do well by your children. And it's like, that's not the case. Sometimes it's really just the time, making sure that you're there to spend time with them, doing movie nights, taking them to the park, um, playing with them, roughhousing with them, reading to them, right? There's, there's a lot that goes into parenting, um, especially fatherhood beyond just providing um, for your kids monetarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is one thing you felt like you might not have been ready for when you became a father? Me? Yeah. Uh, 
Life thing? changes? I got, there's, a, there's a few things, I guess. Um, <laughs> but one that sticks out for, for me is, um, is the amount of time that is really required um, and the amount of time that they take from you. Uh, one of the immediate things when you have a child is they don't go to sleep. <laughs> so they sleep a lot during the day, but at nighttime when you want to sleep, they want to be up. <laughs> so that was immediate. Like you lose sleep right then and there. Um, I think more of the lessons that I'm learning now about fatherhood is now that I have my daughter. Um, I learned about my first son. I understand his personality. He's much, he's very much an empath. He's very sensitive. And my daughter is basically the complete opposite. Um, she's very adventurous. My son is very cautious. My daughter is very, she's very tough. She has a high pain tolerance. She's just different. Um, but with that, you got to learn to navigate the different types of personalities your kids have. Um, so I'm, so I'm adjusting my responses and I'm adjusting the way that I even discipline my children, um, based on their personalities, based on their temperament. And, and that's, that's a big challenge that I really wasn't anticipating. I grew up in a house where, you know, you discipline all the kids the same. I, you, know, you beat one, you beat them all kind of thing. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I grew up. Um, but it's definitely different with my kids and that's probably one of the major adjustments as well that I think I wasn't necessarily ready for, but truthfully, you're never going to be ready to be a father. Um, you're not going to feel completely ready anyway. Um, but what I can say is that, you know, a lot of people who may feel like they're not built for it, the truth is they are built for it. It's a matter of being able to adjust and adapt. And it's a lot of the skills that we do in our day to day life that we're going to be pulling from when we are fathers. Um, uh, let's let's end on this question with uh, still talking about kids. So, as a parent, um, how do you feel that you should deal with like a a child that might have a social disorder, maybe like anxiety or depression? A child having anxiety or depression? Yeah, I'm like a normal kid. Like, it's that simple. <laughs> like, no, nah, no, nah, like literally, like don't treat them like you like with kids. If you treat them like they different, they're gonna feel different, and they're going they're gonna feel less than everybody else. Why would you treat them any different? There's no special treatment. Like, I mean, of course, some things are going to be different, but still. But, yeah, you. I just felt like it was a stupid question. But- <laughs> oh, dang. <laughs> so there's no such thing as super questions. No such thing, right? I think, um, I think one of the things, right, is, and we can kind of piggyback off of how I said my son and my daughter are very different, right? You meet, you meet your child where they're at, right? You want to be able to observe young people and really approach them in a way that pushes them, right? I personally believe that part of a, f- of a parent's role in their child's life is to prepare them for the world, prepare them for autonomy, prepare them for independence, not to pass on fear to their children, but to pass on confidence and courage, right? So really affirming them, right? Um, me and my son, we do words of affirmation. Um, he knows, um, what is it? I go, um, I am strong, he says I am strong. I'm courageous, I'm courageous. Uh, I have a big, big voice. I have a big, big voice. I do that with him specifically because it really is what he needs, right? I don't think I need to do that with my daughter. She has a big voice. She knows she's strong. She's very courageous. She's very brave, right? <laughs> um, so I'm going to have to figure out when, when the time is right, what, what is her needs? What does she specifically need? There's no one size fits all when approaching young people, especially young kids, um, 
But even as kids move into adolescence, that's when you really see a lot of that depressed mood and anxiety and everything. Understanding what it is that they really are feeling. It's hard to put into words. A lot of it is impacted by their social surroundings, right? There's this natural desire as an adolescent to, to fit in. Exactly. To fit in, to want to belong, want to belong to something. If they feel like they're the oddball out, that could be a major contributor to why they appear to have the type of mood they have, right? Don't treat them different. <laughs> <laughs> treat them based on their needs, is how I would put it. That's what I like. Right? That's what I think. Good. I think sometimes like, people. At the end, of course, there's gonna be some differences, but don't treat them like. Nah, cause I'm like, not saying it's not like it's not like a kid would like say like a physical disability. Like you still you treat them different, but it's not like they're gonna be literally the the list of things that they're gonna be is cut in half or about seventy five percent. But I mean, like there might be certain things you might need to add on, like what you said with the affirmation for. Nah, yeah, like, but yeah, I'm saying with like a kid with anxiety or depression. You treat him. You start treating him like he, like he's some weird ass kid. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. <laughs> no, nah, like, that's how I felt when you said <laughs> the question. Nah, nah. <laughs> I think, I think some something to to kind of note is that sometimes when when we're using these kind of words and diagnoses for individuals, it becomes a badge for them. Mm-hmm. Think about how many people are. I'm a survivor of this, or I'm a this that. Especially in this day and age of social media, you could self proclaim anything you want, <laughs> right? So, it's important to identify the symptoms, identify what someone sees rather than a diagnosis, right? Let's, like, there's no need to try to put a diagnosis on everything that is seen. Mental health is so broad, right? Everybody could benefit from therapy. Everybody could benefit from some sort of routine or some sort of a mental health, let me rephrase it, right? Mental well-being, right? If you prioritize your own mental well-being, right? there's a lot of improvement you'll see in other areas in your life. And I think everybody could benefit from that. That's why it's, there's no need to label everything, right? Somebody could be experiencing some, some anxiety, and it's, okay, well, this, this is what I saw, though. Because what did you see? What, what made you think the person was experiencing anxiety? Well, their hands were shaking. They seemed to be sweating, right? This person is depressed. Well, what made you think that they were depressed? They were isolating, right? So, all right, so, so let's address isolation. Why is that person sitting all alone? Why is that person sitting at sitting in the cafeteria at the lunch table by themselves? Why does that person avoid going to school? Let's let's address the behavior. That's literally what I did when I when I got forced into anger management during high school. That's literally what I did. Like put, getting put in anger management, they they just tr- treated me like there was something wrong with me. I immediately was just like, I don't fuck with this. I don't mm-hmm. want to be. I don't want to be around people. I, I'm like, this is making me more upset because yeah. now I'm getting treated like I'm a weird mm-hmm. kid. Yeah. <laughs> That's where that comes from for you. I think that that's exactly why you have that passion behind your response to that because you're absolutely right. No one should no one should be labeled in a way that is now causing everyone to now approach them. Because picture that, right? If they said, "Oh, you know, K is the uh, that's the anger guy. That's the that's that guy you, you don't want to mess with. He's angry, right?" Then auto, then automatically, right? Picture the teachers in the teachers' lounge. They're talking like, "Oh my God, K this week he's been." Right, so the teacher that got you next period is gonna come up to you like, oh, here you go, okay? Right, they're gonna approach you so subtly and so carefully, off of what someone else told them, as opposed to let me actually sit down and actually talk to this kid. Let me actually sit down and actually try to figure out what's going on. How does this person actually feel? You see what I'm saying? And it's better to approach somebody with that kind of reality than to base it on assumption or base it on a label or a diagnosis because just because somebody struggles with anxiety or somebody struggles with depression, struggles with anger, doesn't make them a depressed person 100% of the time, doesn't make them an angry person 100% of the time. Something really important that we try to do in our mental health is use person-first language, right? 
where it's it's a person. It's not necessarily their diagnosis. You don't want to look at that person and say they're a schizophrenic. No, that's somebody who has schizophrenia. But they're a somebody first. They got a name. You know what I'm saying? And you you approach that person that way. You approach them as the person first, not by a label, not by a title, not by a diagnosis. That's how I'll be moving. It's the most, see, that's how I'll be moving. I'm genuine, you know. I'll be... No. Who me? Oh him? I'm moving like that. You should not. Should gen- say? Generosity. You know? Generosity. I'm nice to everybody. You know what I'm saying? You gotta be courteous. Gotta be compassionate. You know, to the That's people around you. Very compassionate. I'm a very compassionate fellow. I've been like that for a minute. Okay. So that how you want to put it. I'm not compassionate. No, I, I feel like that. I spent a lot, especially at the uh, the beginning questions. I spent a lot of this just listening. Like, it's nice. Uh, like, nah, it's, nice. Ni- it's nice just to sit back and listen to him speak, and like, like I actually learned a lot about myself because I, 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 I realized that I had anxiety, but I didn't know where it came. But it usually comes coupled with my anger. Like mm-hmm. when I get mad, yeah. I get anxious, but I don't know why I really get anxious. Yeah, I think I that's just, for a lot of us black men. We don't know necessarily how to channel our anger. We don't know how to um, regulate what we're actually feeling because um, we're not taught that. And most of the time when we do express anger, our anger is usually masking another emotion. Yeah. And we've never been validated in what that other emotion is, nor have we ever been allowed to just express that other emotion. If you walked into a room and you saw a woman sitting at the table, her head down, she's crying, what is your reaction? What is your response? Right? <laughs> Like, no, I'm what, gonna what, what's going on? Like, <laughs> what's going what ha- on? What, what happened? Exactly. What happened? Yeah. What's I'm going on? With tan too much, bro. That's. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna ask you what's going. If I, yeah, I'll be like, what's going on? Nah, what, what happened? Right. Naturally, somebody's probably gonna be like, oh, they they feel some sort of compassion for the individual. They want to try to help. Yeah. Right. But now, if this was a man sitting at a table, you walk into a room, sitting at the table, the weird. man is bawling his eyes out. He's crying. Think something's wrong with him. That's, that's, I see that all the time, though. Yeah. Like. Right? And it's very rare that somebody's going to sit, oh, what's going on? You're going to sit down next to him and try to have a conversation. No. Most of the time, you're looking at this person like, what's wrong with him? Uh, I and and let home- it be a black man crying. I helped a homeless person one day when I was coming home, for, um, coming home from work. Like, he was going up to everybody. Like, he wasn't asking for no money. He just wanted food. But because, like, he looked all messed up and, like, he, it, was, it, was, it was winter, so it was extra cold. He didn't have a real comfortable jacket on. So mm-hmm. he got snot and stuff. Running out of his mouth, and he just acts at people for you know, walking away, looking at him like he nasty, disgusting. I'm like, yo, he's a homeless. You can literally see his sleeping bag right there. So I kind of do regret it because I was hungry, <laughs> but I gave him my sandwich and oh, I just had good. a conversation with him. But that's what it takes. I think that a, a lot of times people are are so quick to see, but people don't just want to be seen; they want to be heard as well, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're with someone, if you see someone. Right. Don't just see them. Don't just observe them, but try to listen to what they have to say. Right. Try to listen to what it is they have to share. What is their story? I used to go to grad school in New York and I used to take the train and I have a cousin of mine who's the same age as me. He was in uh, the theological school. I was in the counseling school, went to the same school. And I remember we were racing back to the train station because if we miss our train, we're going to have to wait a whole hour for the next train to come to bring us home. And I remember I'm running. We're running through the um, Penn Station in New York to try to make it so that we can catch this train. 
And all and this guy, he's in much better shape than me. He runs really fast. The guy is like he was dunking when he was like in eighth grade. I don't know. This guy was like just a freak of nature, right? <laughs> Does parkour. <laughs> but my cousin disappeared. I'm like, where's where's my cousin? Where is he? And I look and he's talking to some homeless woman. I'm like, well, we gotta catch a train. Like, what are you doing? And then I see him pull a bag out of his bag. He gives it to her. And thankfully, we made it on the train. And I asked him. We had a conversation. I said, what's going on? Like, who's that? He knew her. He knew her name. He knew her whole story. I was just like, oh. Oh, her house caught on fire. She's been here for years. She got no family. This, that, and the third. Her family said some family lives out of state, but nobody local. I said, you learn all this about this person? He said, yeah. I always pack an extra sandwich to give to her when I, when I come to class. I said, oh, that's wild. Right? But that's intention. And I think that that's what we lack when it comes to mental health, right? I think the stigma, um, there's been a lot of success when it comes to destigmatizing mental health, but there's still a lot of work to do. And just the day to day, we have to be more compassionate. We have to be more willing to listen to people, hear their stories. We see them, we observe them, but now let's actually listen to what they have to say. I didn't mean to lie, bro. I'll be hanging over Ted's voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. But nah, I, I would say that. Like, never been peppers. Have I seen anybody crying? Like, oh, you good? Are you good? Like, and I'll sit down, I'll talk to them, but that's just the type of person I am. But if I'm with 10 and 10 starts laughing, his laugh is going to make me want to laugh. Some but, people just bring dark humor to some things. I don't need it. <laughs> but. After I finish life, I'm going to go sit down with you and talk. But I guess that's how we're going to wrap up the episode with a, with a 10, like mention a 10 Easter egg or whatever the case may be. Um, B, thank you for coming on to the episode. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad to be here. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up completely? Um, nah, when it comes to self, I know we kind of started with like self-appraisal. How do you self-diagnose, right? When it comes to self, what I can share, what challenge I would give people, individuals, is just try to show some compassion. Try to show some love to yourself. Oftentimes, we, we don't realize how much we beat our own selves up, right? We tend to naturally show more compassion to people around us, right? Somebody might be like, oh, I'm so bad at this, or I don't know how to do. And you're like, nah, nah, you're actually pretty good at this, or nah, you're not that fat, or nah, you're not that, you're not that crazy. You're not, right? We always tend to respond to people's like negative self-talk to give them some sense of encouragement. But how often do we really kill ourselves with the way we speak, right? How often are we really beating ourselves up, right? So if there's any challenge, anything I would leave y'all with, it's really just, you know, don't focus on self, like self-diagnosing. Don't focus on any of that, but really focus on loving yourself. Focus on showing yourself a little bit more compassion, the same compassion that you would give to other people. Give it to yourself as well, because you deserve it. And on that note, that has been another episode of Season 4 of DVD. Hope you guys enjoyed. Um, remember, keep getting your friends to like, subscribe, follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. Keep buying your fall merch because it's getting a little cold out there. It's getting a little chilly. A little chilly. Okay. A little chilly. And until next time, stay different by the fall DVD. You know me. Be ready. Run it up, run it up, run it up, run it up. Whole lot of money in the tuck, tryna double up. I ain't in the lane with nobody, I'm on some other stuff. 